Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the world's leading podcast for injectors and cosmetic businesses. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, an aesthetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend David Segal, an entrepreneur and an aesthetic business mentor. Each episode of IA showcases unfiltered conversations with guests from around the world. In a sometimes disjointed industry, IA aims to help educate and connect our global community to raise the bar for both our businesses and our patients. To further support and educate our listeners, we offer a range of additional resources under our IA Patreon subscription service. This caters for injectors and business owners of all levels and includes interactive live Zoom sessions, webinars, hints and tip videos, private chat groups and exciting future content to come. To subscribe to IA Patreon, head to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon or click the link in our podcast description. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. All right, buddy, it's that time again. It's Business of Injecting, episode 236 of the podcast, but is it chapter 10 of Business for Injecting? You're the one that's got all the stats and oh, the facts. I don't freaking know. I'm not prepared for this one. Uh, <laughs> can we start this one again? No, we're on the spot. While, while you figure that, I'll introduce our guests. You do we, that. We're joined by the the one and only uh, son of Bob Akmoyne. He does have a name. It is Kian, but he is known as Bob as the son of Bob Akmoyne. It is chapter 10, by the <laughs> it way. It is chapter 10. Yeah, well, well done. Welcome back to the podcast, Kian. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to see you guys here. How are you, buddy? Now, I'm going to test you, Kian. When do you think you were last on the podcast? What episode? We, we, this will be episode 236. Oh, when we, oh, okay. uh, it's been about two years, so let's just say a podcast a week. So let's take off about 100. Here we so go. Let's Showing like off the mess. 140. Oh, my goodness. 143. Almost. Not bad. Not that, bad. So, yeah, that was literally almost two years to the day. So. Yep. I think this is an interesting podcast. Normally with the business of injecting ones, we have injectors who own a business. Now, we know you're not an injector, but you do own a business and you employ injectors. And when we had you on last time, we were talking about the opening of your clinic, Qtox, which now is two years old or just over. So we thought it'd be interesting to sort mm-hmm. of look at the journey, the the ups, the downs, the, the future, and just sort of see how your journey's gone. Because I, I, I guess mm. David fields questions all the time from injectors about, you know, the the pains and the perils of opening a business or even should they open a business and you've kind of done that so we thought we'd sort of interrogate what has worked and maybe what hasn't and what you've tweaked yeah i think that's good and and maybe just to kick things off even though um people can go back and listen to episode 143 maybe just give us the uh the two minute kian moini elevator pitch tell us about your background because you don't come from a typical sort of background in this industry you, you started off in finance and banking so um yeah tell us all about yourself and owning yeah, gelato absolutely. businesses as well yeah, that's true yes <laughs> well yeah i'll start off with qtox first so what the aim of qtox was is to be a premium clinic at a mid-tier price so how we wanted to do that was to take out the best from the chain clinics where we've got the accessibility of treatments like botox fillers but also add on some extra treatments that they don't offer here in australia such as threads collagen stimulators such as Sculpture and Profilo, and also offer a route into plastic surgery as well. We also want to take the best from the doctor's clinics. We had really experienced nurses. You had people who had enough time to perform a proper consult and address patient concerns with things like clinical photography, ultrasounds, et cetera, in an environment where patients felt safe and were willing to build a relationship over the long term. Part of my background and where I fit into the jigsaw puzzle, which is QTOX, as you'll quickly see, is 
I'm the entrepreneur behind it. So where I started prior to this was private equity. So what we would do in private equity is buy and sell businesses at a very high level. So we would find something making $3 million of profit, and we might buy it for $10 million. Then we would turn that business into an enterprise which was making $5 million, and then we would sell it for $30 million. We would take that $20 million difference and then distribute those earnings to our shareholders. So that's my background and QDocs' background in essence. Uh, I've worked in clinics prior to that as well, but probably nowhere near as much as you guys or probably nowhere near as much as I've done over the past two <laughs> years. But uh, it's been it's been a great journey to date and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what comes out of this. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, most people that are business owners out there in this space are doctors and nurses. So they're people that have come from a clinical background and then trying their hand at a business ownership. And that's where a lot of the challenges come from. A lot of people do it well. A lot of people struggle as well. And there's just is a lack of education and experience when it comes to things outside of clinical practice. So I find these conversations really interesting because you have come from a business background. So a lot of tasks that you do on a daily basis, and we'll get into this in terms of the way that you use data to inform your decisions with what you're going to do with the business moving forward, analyzing performance, looking at things like return on investment, where to spend your marketing dollars, what's working, what's not, is what is very foreign to a lot of business owners who are in this space. So I think you'll be able to, as you did in the first podcast that you did with us, shine a light and a different perspective on running a business from a different mindset. Yeah, and I'd actually be interested to know as a non-injector, mm. non-clinician who, you know, you're two years into the journey of owning and running QTOC successfully from what I hear, whether that mindset has had any issues with your injectors who want to do it a different way because you're not an injector. You you see this very much through a, not just a spreadsheet, I understand that you're a holistic business owner, but that's how you sort of read success. It's, it's your numbers, right? And so well, I'm wondering whether yeah. you've ever encountered any you know, slight niggles or issues with your injectors who saw it a different way? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a couple of questions inside there. The first one being, how do we use data to inform our decisions? And the second one being, how is my, for lack of a better term, lack of medical knowledge may be conflicted with my yes. nurses at times. So to touch on data and analytics, I mean, I could talk about this all day <laughs> long. I, I've <laughs> spoken to pretty much every pharmaceutical company about data and analytics, how we use it in our business and how it informs us on a day-to-day basis, week-to-week basis, month-on-month basis. I can now accurately predict seven to 14 days out exactly how much money we're going to make within the next two weeks, um, quite simply. I know which nurses are going to make more money from fillers. I know which nurses are going to make more money from tox. I know which ones are going to accurately dose the glabella I know which one's going to underdose in the crow's feet. I know who has more confidence and depth of knowledge of collagen stimulators versus fillers, and as a result, who is able to push up their average spend. Hmm. Quite simply, it is impossible to have a high average spend in Australia unless you charge a ridiculous amount for tox, and I'm talking over $20 per unit, unless you sell fillers. And when you sell fillers, you can't just sell them one mil at a time. That doesn't mean that everybody who comes in needs fillers, and that certainly doesn't mean that everybody who gets fillers needs more than one mil, but it means that you cannot really get by in Australia giving somebody, well, giving enough people a holistic consultation unless you're selling fillers. And I should also mention that goes for collagen stimulators as well. They're very interchangeable, and I might say fillers and collagen stimulators 
in this chat, but they are very interchangeable. Um, when you say, sorry to cut you off, when you say interchangeable, you mean in terms of the... The average spend. The average sorry. spend. So, yeah, we're not talking about interchangeable in terms of indication for like absolutely therapeutic. Not. Okay, absolutely right. not. Okay, right. Okay. Just to clarify that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not that bad with medical. <laughs> <laughs> I've yeah. learned the thing. Yeah, two. like filler, tox, collagen, sumitas. Oh, it's all the same. <laughs> yeah, it's all the same. <laughs> uh, no, that sounds like the people will critique fillers and tox. And yeah. I'm definitely on the other side there. Um, to, Jake, to answer your question of whether it's uh, whether there's been conflict, the good thing about my model is I go into partnership with nurses. So I own. Both of my QTOC sites are 50% with other nurses, and they've been wonderful to me, not only as mentors and as guides, but as people to throw ideas off of to work out what's best for our medical team. So I do not actually inform any decisions in the room as to what is chosen for what drugs to be injected or in what quantity. If a nurse asks me for a drug to be supplied, we, we do a financial analysis to make sure that it's sound mm. because some fillers cost a substantial amount more than others. And that's okay if the value is there. Yeah. But if if the price is different and the product is largely the same, there has to be a pretty big justification. And some brands will say education and training. Some brands will say better credit terms, and that's okay. But we have to work out what's good for our case. Yeah. So the conflicts, I wouldn't call them conflicts as much as you know internal discussions to work out what's best for the business. Yeah. Um, but yes, they have arisen, but we've always gone through them because at the end of the day, we're aligned as to what is going to be best for our patient experience, what will our nurses like to grow and develop, and what can we do as a brand to set ourselves out from our competitors. So those are what guide our decisions, and it doesn't matter about who's a doctor, who's a nurse, who's a business owner. What we look for is, is there a track record of safety? Is there a business case for this? And will our patients respond to this in a positive way? And, you know, how does this affect our reputation? Those are the guiding principles that we use in running our business when selecting new products and choosing to keep products on. That's great. We'll, we'll definitely dive into some, in, uh, some of that into more detail later. But maybe you can just give us a synopsis of, you know, what the, what the first clinic is. You said you've got two now and, and you yeah. know, expansion is a big part of the end of this podcast. And, and when do you decide to do that? But, you know, what is QTOX very simply for people who maybe missed the first episode? And then we can talk about, well, what kind of worked and, and what maybe you've had to tweak or change or what what you might have liked to have done if you could have redone it. Well, I don't know anyone who skips over an episode of Inside Aesthetics. So <laughs> <laughs> well, the feedback we get is, you know, we get a lot of new listeners, which is great but they don't have time to go through 236 episodes and they'll tend to go backwards because I think our newer ones are better mm. uh, and probably more relevant, obviously. But um, Well, this is the most thank new you, one, so I, that, that feels great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the, the, question, the question was, you know, um, what is QTOX and what did and didn't work initially? So yeah. QTOX is a premium clinic operating at a mid-tier price inside shopping malls. It has a small footprint in order to reduce its overall cost basis. It is owned, co-owned between nurses and, entre and an entrepreneur, which is myself. Mm. And what we aim to do is we can't say we're specialists in inj injectables, but that's really what we're trying to do. Be absolutely focused on only cosmetic injectables. We do do a little skin. We delve into plastic surgery as well, which you'll hear about more. However, cosmetic injectables makes up over 95% of our revenue. So, so can, I, can yeah. I pin you down? What do you mean by premium? I, I know what you mean because I've yeah. visited. It's lovely. But w w what do you mean? 
Because a lot of people like to. I, I love I love this word premium because I see it all the time on Instagram. I see it all the time at conferences <laughs> where people call themselves premium. Nobody else is advertising themselves out there as you know a low tier clinic. Everybody wants to call themselves. <laughs> yeah, premium. we're t- we're a terrible clinic at rock bottom prices. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So, uh, sorry, David. You were saying. I was just going to say. I mean, I'm. I, you know, I was going to answer your question for you, but I'll let you do it. So you're the guest. Oh, okay. Uh, well, look, I think pre- I think <laughs> premium I was for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think premium to me is, is multifaceted. I think it comes down to the quality of nurses and receptionists you have working inside the practice. Yeah. How are you greeted when you come in? So we do valet parking for all of our uh, cosmetic injectables patients. So before wow. you've even walked through the door, you have a touch point of premium there that no other clinic has managed to replicate as far as I know. Our nurses are experienced and have the time and quality to spend with patients in the room to go through a proper consult. So that's clinical photography where you can zoom right up to every wrinkle and see, all right, what are we actually addressing today? We've got more tools available than other clinics because most places only carry fillers or tocs and they may delve into into collagen stimulation as well. We've got a great offering in terms of our collagen stimulation. We also offer a bit of skin with LED light therapy and treatments such as Lumixer. Uh, Where else does our premium touch come from? Walk through the clinics. They look gorgeous. They're not a fishbowl. So they're private. They're acousticized correctly. They have a look and feel to them that makes you want to spend time with them Mm. rather than visiting in for an appointment. We don't just offer appointments, we offer experiences, and that's why we have people coming back over and over again. Mm. And maybe just to sort of give people some context that aren't in the Australian market. So when you look at the landscape of clinics in Australia, you've probably got you know, two major ends of the market or two ends of the bell curve. So you've got the, the chain clinics, when there's quite a few of those now, which are high volume, low price point. You know, As those clinics have been sold to large private equity firms or large large corporations. Obviously, they've got the lens on to to grow these businesses to then sell them as an asset and make a huge upside when that occurs. And so, what has transpired? And I'm talking in general terms. So, anyone that's working in a chain clinic that um, is a, is a high quality experience injector, I'm not talking to you. I'm just talking. And there are plenty. There in, are yeah, plenty. And, and but talking in general terms, when you have such a large footprint of like hundreds of clinics, there there tends to be a diminishing number of experienced people who are remaining in those clinics, but just simply by you know the laws of supply and demand. The more places that are open, the more people that are needed to work there, and there's only a certain number of experienced people hmm. around. And so, I guess what I mean, you know, to sort of orientate people further is that you've got then places where you work, Jake, where you work in a plastic surgery surgeon's office. Your prices are much higher. It's it's a very sort of top end experience for patients, and there hasn't really been anything in the middle. And I hmm. think that's what you're trying to say, Kian, is that you sort of placed yourself in the middle where you, you've sought out experienced people, you've kept the premises high-end and sort of boutique kind of feeling, but still making them accessible to people by putting them in like grade A shopping centres. You know, I think your plan is to put them in, when we'll get onto this in terms of your expansion plans around the country. So it's kind of like a hybrid where you've got all the accessibility and convenience of a chain clinic without the extremely high price tag of sort of somewhere like where Jake works, which potentially could be out of reach for, for a lot of people. Would that be like a fair sort of explanation. That's a very fair yeah. description. 
I'm not that expensive. I'm not the most expensive by any means, but <laughs> I, no, I, I think it's a fair comparison. Um, going back to the the shopping mall thing again for our listeners abroad, it, it, it's probably quite a bizarre concept. It, it seems so normal here that we we, we forget yeah. that it's a thing now. But you know, you go to a Westfield or, or a large shopping centre, you'll easily find five clinics offering similar services. So you do have more competition around. Um, Yes, you maybe got higher footfalls. So there's some pros and cons. H- how has it worked out? And of course, it depends on where your location is in the mall and so on. So, you know, tell us about that experience. Well, when we launched, it was a very special time, if you guys remember. We had just come out of a four-month-long COVID lockdown. <laughs> yeah. The world was going through a new wave of COVID, Omicron at the time. And there were 5,000-year low record interest rates. Uh, that has all changed where the pandemic is largely over and interest rates are now the highest that they've been about 12, 15 years or so. So did you say 5,000 year low? 5,000 year lows in interest rates. I read that what? the other day in the AFI. Do they, do they even have was... a currency 5,000 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know I'll what take your word is. for it. I'll fact check yeah, that later. Take my word for it. Very okay. low. Okay, very low. <laughs> I don't know who the central bank was uh, in ancient Rome. It was but... Moses. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the interest rates were, were quite low. So we launched, we had a very lucky launch. And I know that sounds crazy, but we had all this pent-up demand from friends of mine that wanted to visit the clinic, friends of my business partner, Naomi, or I should say patients, who wanted to visit the clinic. So we launched with you know, over 100 people on the books just to go. Mm. We depleted through you know, 60 of those in our first week, had, did an insane amount of revenue. Then we went through 50 of those the week after, still had good revenue. Then the week after that, declined but i was okay then it declined again and i was like this isn't what i expected but (laughs) you know we're surviving and then by the fifth week or so i was like what the heck is going on and yeah a friend of mine who runs a similar business said well you know this is expected you don't actually have a client base you've depleted through everybody you know now it's time for you to build so rather than running around like headless chooks we just looked at the data and we said all right Where are our patients coming from? So we broke it down into four areas. Online, referrals, walk-ins, or on the phone, which generally meant that we couldn't find them. Approximately 70% of our clients from then on were walk-ins, believe it or not. So it was a ridiculous amount. So the key focus was how do we get more people to walk through the door? To get more people to walk through the door, they had to look at our shop. To get them to look at our shop, we had to put up more advertising. That took us about three months to work out. Then it took us another three months to get the necessary approvals, structural engineers, et cetera, to put up another TV uh, inside our shop. So when people would walk from left to right, they would see advertising as well as when they would walk from right to left. Because, And this is something that I didn't even think of. We designed the shop as if you're looking from front on. And it looked gorgeous front on, but 99% 99% of people who come into our shop are walking from the left or the right. So it's something you think about and you only realize that when you design your second shop and you say, well, <laughs> we're not going to make that mistake again, but we're able to fix it. Now, you know, and another business may have died um, if the entrepreneur didn't think about that or it never struck, struck them. I didn't have the right conversations with people. So that really changed the business after the first six months where our walk-ins exploded. They got even stronger 
Um, what else didn't go so well? Our, our photography system initially had a bit of friction, um, but the person we used, Woodrow from Clinical Im- Imaging, he was great. Um, he really helped diagnose all the issues. And after you know two months, zero problems. And that photography system has saved our ass so many times where somebody's come in and said, Hey, you know, this red dot wasn't on my lips before. What the heck's what the heck's happened? Or hey, I don't see any change. You know, these fillers do nothing. Then you put the people side by side and they're almost apologetic. And you know, we don't hold it against them because we've all been there where we look at ourselves in the mirror and we think, I look the same as I did 10 years ago or five years ago. Um, but the reality is photographs are an objective medical record, and there's no denying that. So that yeah. was good. Things that went really well for us was I had a great team. And I still do have a great team. Having support around you to take days off. And that's something which is very understated because as an entrepreneur, you don't get days off sometimes. You'll have to work 100-hour weeks. You might have to work 50, 60, 70, 80-hour weeks. It's difficult. But it's about having the tenacity to pull through and just keep knowing that there's going to be a brighter day. So as our turnover increased, as our client base grew, fewer and fewer headaches came up because the biggest headache anybody has in this industry is how do I get more patients? Mm. So our focus went away from patient numbers because they were growing naturally after about six months when we fixed all those problems to, all right, what do we have to do to improve our injectors to give patients a better experience? And how we did that was by analyzing data to see who was administering more tox on average than other people and breaking it down and saying, well, look, we've got three nurses here. One person is dosing on average 18 units in the glabella. One person's at 16, one person's at 15. Let's find out who's doing the best job because the highest dose is not necessarily always correct. So we just kept analyzing and kept trying to improve our nurses to keep the experience the same because over a large enough pool of patients, things will revert to a mean. And I think that's one thing that I'm surprised a lot of medical professionals and entrepreneurs don't realize in this industry. So, like, is it perfect? No, but on average, yes, you'll be correct. That's interesting. Kind of reminds me of football now, where the players wear, you know, wearable devices and, you know, can look at the performance, who scored the goals, et cetera. But what will happen is the technical team behind the scenes will just look at the data who ran yeah. the most, who did this, who did that. And you're kind of doing that with your injectors, which is interesting. I've, I've not heard of anyone do that before. Um, but it, it, it works. Yeah, and you're it right. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that who's dosing the mm. most is the best. Yeah. But of course, you could also look at it the other way and the one who's dosing the least, you know, they're getting more people coming back saying it didn't work, it didn't last, or complaints, yeah. or exactly whatever. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And then I guess as well, you know, I think you and I have had some offline discussions about this because obviously we, we socialize and we've got connections through, you know, your, your dad and I talk <laughs> almost daily. So, you know, I've, I've a, you guys could be married. Yeah, we could be. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought that was me. <laughs> You're cheating on me <laughs> again. Um, but I think, you know, one of the conversations that we had, Kian, was that, you know, you've got different people in your team who have different strengths and weaknesses. So even though you're using this data to analyze problems or, looking for areas where people could improve, you also got people who potentially are more inclined to be more of a filler injector, someone who who basically recommends it more, is more comfortable doing it, believes in the way that they do things versus someone who says, look, I'm not like a big filler person, but I really love the collagen stimulating side of things. I really am passionate about tox, but I don't want to do so many fillers. So I guess, 
you know, you know, the conversations that we've had are where you might actually start looking at directing certain patients to different injectors depending on where their strengths and weaknesses lie. So, you know, the analogy, well, Jake's on the sports team, you know, not everyone on the, on the, on the football field, I know you're a soccer head, um, <laughs> is going to be a striker. Yeah. And Correct. so is that something that, you know, we've spoken that, about it, but I mean, how, how that's important? That's definitely right. Yeah. Like, look, like uh, I've got a team of five nurses inside there. I know two of them off the top of my head love um, off-label. They love doing off-label talks. They, those have the highest doses of talks. Uh, they are the highest doses of talks in my clinic by far. Mm. They've got solid average spends. There's no, there's no real issues with talks, as you guys know, you know, aside from ptosis. Tosis, they haven't come up yet, you know, touch wood. But when they're able to give people off-label talks, you're giving somebody an experience that they're generally not getting anywhere else because most people only focus from here to here. When you start focusing on, you know, the bunnies and down, you can really start giving people an experience with talks that they're not getting anywhere else, whether it's skin tightening or something as simple as a mentalis, because these areas are still subject to wrinkles and there's a share of face there that nobody else is capturing. There's this idea that tox is just something that you can kind of shop around for. And I think that was probably true five years ago, but if you become really good at tox and that's the thing you want to dominate, that's okay. And I've seen clinics in the United States, not in person, but online that just do tox. Mm. And I think maybe there could be a market for a sub niche, which could arise in the next three to five years. But certainly there are people on my team who do not like performing a lot of fillers. And then there are some people who do like selling a lot of fillers. I can't deny reality though. If you sell more fillers and collagen stimulators, your average spend will be higher. Now, average spend is not the only metric you have to look at when you're running a clinic. You have to look at things like return rate, patient satisfaction, safety, um, time taken to perform the treatment, all of these things matter together. And you can't just plug it into a magic formula and say, this is the perfect nurse, because the reality, it's not. Out of all five of my nurses, I can tell you who's the best dose of Dysport, Botox, Latibo, um, who's the highest doses for fillers, who loves collagen stimulators more than other, others. But David, to your point before, you're not going to change how a what a nurse believes and doesn't believe, and or a doctor. And I think you're kind of putting pushing shit up a hill by trying to do that. You're far better off focusing on saying, what is this person good at? What is this person interested in? What does this person believe in? And working with them to make them the best at that. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and, and I think as well, you start to create a clinic that then caters to a large range of different clients because there are the clients that like, you know, more of an augmented look that appreciate higher uh, filler volumes you like people who are more of the you know inverted commas positive ages who like that real natural look that like shy mm. away from that so i guess you start to create a business that's going to have a broader range of appeal to mm. different sort of sex of, of the uh of the of, of the of the general market i mean what do you think about that jake i mean you know yeah. you've been around for a, a long time yeah definitely i mean use our clinic example we've got three injectors working across two sites um you know, yes, I'm a heavy Allergan user, but I use Profilo, now Reduran. So, you know, kind of yeah. do those three things really well. Um, we've got Michelle, she uses Galderma range, and we've got Sarah who uses a mix of everything. But 
we're all doing slightly different things. Mm. And so not only do we use different products, different techniques, but different personalities, mm. uh, different sexes even of Injector. So, you know, you're, you're sort of catering for, for different clientele, I guess. And yeah. I think that should be, you know, if I was going to design a business or open a clinic, I would almost try to recruit deliberately that way mm. rather than have everyone, you know, the king at Botox, but no one's using other products. Mm. Um, I agree. So, you know, I, I think it works. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, I think, David, you said mm. there's a stat of, you know, in the first year, is it 90% of businesses fail, new businesses? Something yeah, that's, it's crazy a, like that. It's a, a general number that's across all businesses, not in particular this sector, but just yeah. as, as a general rule of thumb. So, yeah. you know, obviously in your year one, I mean, you're still here and you're expanding, Kian, but d did you ever have a rocky point where you're like, oh, could be in that 90% of... Uh, you know, fatalities. Yeah, yeah, fatalities, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I've always believed in myself and I've always had people around me who have believed in me as well. And a lot of people will freak out when numbers begin to decline. Mm. And if you're just going to respond to market forces and freak out, you probably shouldn't own a business. It's, yeah. it's a psychological game as much as it is a financial game. Uh, you know, there were times where we weren't making money and we had to work out what we were going to do to begin to make money. But there are commercial arrangements that you make with landlords or suppliers, or you're using other people's line, um, other people's lines of credit to get through that. Um, I would probably say by about end of December, start of January 2021, uh, yeah, the year 21-22, because of the Omicron crisis, for there's only two weeks in QTOX's history where we've ended the week with fewer clients than what we started with. So we may have had eight people booked in the start of the week, then we walked away with six. Hmm. Two of those weeks were both in December and January of 2021-22. And that was kind of scary because I'd worked in other businesses before and I'd never seen them. And I was like, is this a result of me? Is this a result of my team? Because I'm not in the room with them saying, hey, inject 50 units into this person and sell five mils. That's not, that's not how I act in the business at all. Yeah. So I was very confused and I was like, well, what does this actually mean for the business? But I just have to hold on and say, all right, what is it that I have to fundamentally change in order to turn this into a larger enterprise? So having a vision of saying, how do we turn this into a $5 million business helps you make, make those decisions because you start saying, all right, well, to get to $5 million, that's, I think that's a hundred grand a week in turnover. I might be wrong, but sorry. Um, like it's 100 grand a week in turnover. All right. If your average spend is 500 bucks, that means you need to see 200 people. All right. Maybe you're at 10. How do we get from 10 to 20? How do we get from 20 to 40? Mm. And 40 to 80, et cetera, et cetera. So you really just have to break it down and say, well, what can I control to get there? Mm. And what are the different levers that I'll have to pull at a different time? Yeah. Um, but I would certainly say December, January 2021, 22 was scary, but by the time we got through to February, our numbers just shot up. And I would say that was largely because people forgot that Omicron was on or they <laughs> got over the pandemic or whatever it was. But we got through it and you know, we're doing much bigger numbers now than we were doing back then. And I've got a very strong feeling about this business and I don't see it going to zero. Brilliant. Well, that's good. <laughs> Zero is not good. Zero is yeah. not good unless well, you're playing there's, golf. There's yeah. another interesting stat if I could quickly um, jump in. something about, You said 90% of businesses fail. You're right. 
about 95% of businesses fail when people start them in their 20s. So I was 23 when I signed the lease. About well, look, you, you've got facial hair now. I mean, lots, <laughs> a, lot's, a lot's happened in the last two years, Kia. Uh, well, my dad got rid of hair everywhere and I'm bringing it back. Yeah, um, <laughs> so um, about 85% of businesses fail if you start in your 30s and I think it's about 60 or 70 in your 40s. So mm. you know, age is a big factor in this as well, but I think that comes as a function of experience and by having experienced people around me, you know, I've stood on the shoulders of giants to see, uh, to get to where I am and I'm thankful that I've got people out there as mentors who have been able to guide me uh, through this. But certainly, starting a business is not easy, mm. and it's not something that you should just do for fun. I think yeah. you have to do it uh, if you actually want to make a change in the world and see see people grow and be a mentor to people. Yeah. And maybe I'll just take this sort of moment as a little segue to, I guess, reinforce the importance of understanding data and using your CRM systems properly getting your head around your accounting system, knowing what the numbers are when you're looking at them. Because, you know, Kian, when you had those stressful moments and when you're looking at a business in its inception and you're sailing close to the wind in terms of success or failure, if you don't have any understanding of numbers or how to analyze those numbers and how to interpret those numbers, then you're really just crossing your fingers and hoping that it's all going to work out. And you know, a lot there were of, times I, where I did that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, I talked to a lot of people in this space and, um, you know, they're all great injectors. They're all really passionate and love what they do. But I guess this conversation is kind of what I would highlight to them is that, you know, even though Kian is not from a clinical background, having that understanding of numbers and looking at things and being able to analyze what they all mean and being able to try different strategies mm. and testing and learning from those gives you the ability that when times do get tough, and I, I do think, and we'll get onto this, I do think, you know, tougher times are ahead of us. I mean, we've got a geopolitical mess. We've got, you know, incompetent leaders around the world sort of sailing us into, <laughs> sailing <laughs> us into some sort of potential hellscape. And so I think that, you know, having this knowledge and spending the time to educate yourself on the numbers and really understanding what makes your business tick, you know, when things do tighten, when people start reducing the amount of visits to your clinic every year, when they start pulling back on volumes of fillers and toxins, knowing your numbers and understanding, you know, what is your break-even point every week? What costs what cost can you potentially cut? What marketing strategies are actually yielding your, a proper return on your investment? Um, you know, are there people in your clinic that aren't carrying their weight that potentially don't need to be there or do they require more training or direction? You know, this kind of fingers crossed hoping for the best mentality is okay when times are good. Yeah. And so I think, Kian, you know, and I, and I guess just to plug our Patreon again, you know, we did a, a video, you and I, you know, maybe close to six to eight months ago now where you oh, actually, yeah, where you actually yeah. took us through. And I think at the time you're using Pabu, I think you still are, but I think you're looking to change at some point in the future, maybe. Yep. Um, you know, you took us through how you, how you analyze data and how you used your CRM system to generate these reports, which gave you like a roadmap of what was actually going on with your business and helped you inf helps you make informed and educated decisions rather than just, you know, trying your luck and seeing what works? Well, very simply, you can only make money in this industry if you have bookings. So what we try to do is we go to, we go to like first principles to say, where do we start and how do we build out from there? So... A lot of people will just say, oh, I built really well today. I made five grand. Like my question is, all right, how much cash did you actually put in your pocket? So I'll give you a very like good example. Um, in 
January of this year, we were a Botox-heavy clinic. It made up 65% of our toxin sales. Um, we were buying Botox for about $5 a unit. We're selling it for about $11 a unit, which meant we put $6 in our pocket for every for every unit we sold. Then Latipo came to the market around May this year. And just putting aside efficacy, I'm just going to run you guys through the numbers. I think efficacy is a different conversation here. Uh, we, we were selling Latipo for the same price, $11, and we're buying it for about three. So we're making $8. So a lot of people will just say, hey, I made five grand. I care about something called the gross profit, which is how much money you're putting in your pocket after you pay the suppliers. Um, there is a pharmaceutical company that's extremely smart in our industry and knows that we're focusing on top line numbers. And I always encourage nurses when they come to me or doctors to say, hey, I'm not doing so well. They'll show me how much turnover they're making. I'm like, let's not start there. Let's start at the gross profit because you'll only know how well your business is doing after you pay off your supply, after you pay off your suppliers, so there's all these tricks that um, pharmaceutical companies, or you know, generally pharmaceutical companies, <laughs> will try to play. <laughs> and, and I will say this, and like it sounds controversial, but I don't have a problem with pharmaceutical com companies in this industry. They want to make money. They want to help people. I understand that, to be honest. Um, my view is. Look at your gross profit. Don't look at your revenue. Look at where your expenses are. What's actually what's actually necessary? There's something called uh, um, ground zero budgeting, which is where instead of looking at last month's profit and loss and saying, what can we cut? You start from zero and say, what is actually necessary? And it's been a really good Sherpa for me, for lack of a better term, because our expenses have actually gone down as our revenue has gone up. And not many brands can say that. And sure, my financial background has helped, but you do not need a degree in finance to do this. You do not need to have the skills of Warren Buffett. You just need to look at your business and say, what's actually necessary? Get a top-down view, and then as you need things, bring them in. If you don't need them, let them go. You've probably got a subscription sitting somewhere that you don't need from you know two years ago. I cut it because that money belongs in your pocket instead of somebody else's. I think you've brought this mm. up a few times, David, where mm. you, you've gone through your mentorship with various injectors yeah. around the world. And it seems to be a recurring theme. I don't, I don't understand it. Why would people not understand their costs as well as just their gross revenue? It just seems bizarre, you know, because for, our, our for product, an industry, which is so focused on data and analytics, but also a our lot products of lack of understanding of data and analytics, you know, they're not negligible costs. They're often 50% of the revenue. Yeah. So yeah. Why, uh, why is it such a, a lot of the time it's death by a thousand cuts. So right. it's not one major expense line item that's, that's hemorrhaging their business. It's mm. a collection of lots of different things. And so when they look at things sure. in isolation, they don't really see the significance of how that's going to impact things. It's the, it's the totality yeah. of all these little things um, that add up and, and sort of create the disaster or the disaster that's potentially coming. That's yeah. the problem. Um, and then I guess it's just people focusing on where their strengths are. So if you're someone that comes from a clinical background and your brain's thinking patient outcomes, patient interactions, you know, different techniques that you're going to apply – to go and push yourself into a different area where you potentially don't have a lot of confidence, you don't have someone mentoring you that's going to mm. take you through these processes. And I guess as an educated person, like someone that's a doctor or a nurse that's been to university, has a degree, to then turn around and go, you know what, I'm 
completely clueless at something. It can sometimes be an ego thing mm. potentially as well. I'm not saying that people have huge egos. It's it, sometimes you feel, you don't want to feel stupid yeah. to admit that you don't know or to take the time to educate yourself on something. And as humans, I think we naturally gravitate towards our strengths. Yeah. So this, I think it's a combination the, of those three things. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I mean, Jake, you and I sell the exact same product. We both have Botox in our clinic. We're both buying it for the same or similar prices. So why would one of us make more money than the other? I mean, just on a, a revenue perspective, mm -hmm. The product that we sell is not Botox. The product that we sell is our skills. Correct. It's our trust. It's our confidence. It's how our clinic looks. It's how it makes somebody feel when they enter and exit the business. It's the additional touch points they have when they're outside of the business, EDMs, text messages, sales, if there are those, whatever it may be. And I think people forget that this industry is about marketing because the product we sell is the same. So you have to be, it's about getting a low customer acquisition cost and trying to get more, more clients. And I think that's hard, not just for a lot of doctors and nurses. This problem is not unique to them. This, this happens to accountants who start their own business. This happens to caterers who start their own businesses. These people are great at what they do. Like you said, Dave, they're really good with um, learning new techniques. They familiarize themselves with clinical patient outcomes, which are safe and best practice or whatever they may, may be. If you're a caterer, you know, you're making sure that you're following the best food safety protocols that are out there, or at least I hope you are, <laughs> but that doesn't actually help you get more, more clients. I mean, it's a nice thing to have and it's just something you'd expect, but nobody's going on Google and searching most hygienic caterer out there <laughs> and then finding a bunch of results. What they're looking for is somebody who's got a good price, who's got a nice track record of doing it, they're convenient to, um, to access, they've got good reviews about them. So having all of those things becomes an advantage. And it's a, this exponential system of what capitalism is, where if you have 10 clients, it's a lot easier to get your next 10. But a lot of the time, the game we're playing is marketing. And I'll admit, the first time I launched my clinic, I was horrible at marketing. This time around, I'm going really hard. I'm doing different things. Mm. But it's not an easy thing to admit. And, you know, I'll be the first person in the world to say that I was not so good at marketing when I first started. I'm far better than I am now. I am far better now than I was before. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys suggest this, but um, I found it really useful. I've got a spreadsheet that I've still got on my laptop. I don't look at it that often now because I know what my pricing is and my cost, but draw a spreadsheet of all of your products in your cupboard uh, with both the cost and the sale price and then maybe like a little um, chart of, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 to 100 units, like com common, you know, numbers. And then you could basically scan your calendar for the week and you could almost guesstimate roughly what you're going to earn mm. just by looking at it and knowing your costs and your, and your sale price. You're 100%. I, right. I feel like someone should be able to do that. Otherwise, you don't really know where you're at. Mm. Um, it, it, it a formula I use is I get the number of clients at the start of my week and I multiply it by my average spend. And that's a good proxy for how much revenue I'm going to make in the in the week. So yeah. Jake, how you're doing, it's the exact same, but just with product. Yeah. You're, you're entirely right. Um, I, I just feel like injectors sometimes would have no idea. Mm. They, they, don't, they don't know what they're earning. Uh, and that's scary. No, and they've been able to get away with it because the margins have been so high and the competition has been relatively modest compared to most other businesses out there. If you look at like the retail fashion 
industry mm. or food industry. Like, you know how hard it is to make money making coffees oh, or selling dresses or shirts? Like Such it, hard work as well. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. But because this industry has been such massive margins and the demand has just been exponentially growing every year, people have just been making money in spite of doing everything that goes against good business principles because yeah. they've been spoilt with conditions, good economic conditions and an industry that's just been booming. Mm. Um, but that won't last forever because, you know, the best certainly way- Certainly not now. Yeah. The best, like you said, certainly yeah, not now. If you, the best way to predict the future is to look at the past. And if you look at every other industry, yep. <laughs> eventually, you know, you get big corporate players that come into the market you get higher levels of efficiency, you get more regulation that comes in, the consumers start to become more educated. Yeah. You know, and, and eventually you get to that point where you actually need to really treat it like a proper business or by the time you realise <laughs> that you're in trouble, it might be too late in some instances. And I don't mean to laugh, but, you know, it's it's just, you know, you just see you just see the same story happening over and over again in, in sort of in, in, in different different clothing, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a number of bullet points that Dave and I have sort of brainstormed. I wonder if we could go each bullet point because I think it's just useful to go through some specifics. And yeah. then maybe at the end we'll talk about the, the sort of the bigger economic doom and gloom that David sort of alluded to that may <laughs> or may not be happening. Um, one of the new, unique things with your clinic, and I don't know if you've done this for your second one, is actually the size of the clinic. Yeah. Um, it's very... It's smalls being um, I like mean. the word cozy. Yeah, it, it, it's compact, <laughs> but but it's intimate. But, it, but it's intimate. <laughs> you know, but logically, you're you're in a, a rental in a you know a shopping mall. It's not cheap, so I understand that there's got to be a compromise. But it's yep. also functional. But you know, if if rent wasn't so much of an issue, w would you make it bigger, or was it purely based on 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 the price of the rental? Well, the price of the rental was the guiding factor in having a small shop. So yeah. my shop in Bondi Junction is 45.5 uh, square meters. Mm. My shop in Norellan is 41.6 square meters. Right. Downscale. If I could, if I, I'm to ignore your, the first, the second part of your question, if I could <laughs> go smaller, I would again. And okay. I know how to do it. My rooms in Norellan are bigger than my rooms in, in, in Bondi. Now, if rent weren't a factor, would I have a bigger clinic? Look, I think it would be nice and it would certainly give me more options to do with what I want, mm -hmm. but I don't really think it's going to increase my turnover that much. Yeah. And why I say that is this. When you're injecting, the patient's eyes are closed. So if the space were much bigger, it's not going to allow us much room to do much else. There have been times where we've conducted training sessions where we thought, hey, it'd be nice if we had more space. There have been times where we've had team meetings where it's been a little bit too tight for us. But overall, it hasn't really changed the unit economics of the business too much. Yeah, I think if we had an extra half a meter in width and half a meter in depth, in both rooms, in Bondi, that would be nice. In Norellan, the rooms are actually bigger than the ones in Bondi. Uh, we've managed to shift a lot of the dead space into the rooms. And by funneling it there, I think the patient experience in the rooms will be better purely from a space perspective. I can't tell you from an injecting perspective because that's such a unique thing. Yeah. But no, I don't think I would materially change the size of my clinics. Okay, fair enough. And 
I guess that's led by what services you're offering. So you said at the start you do 95% injectables, you offer some topical skincare to, to sell, and I think yep. you've got an LED light room, which is like a, a smaller room. Yes. Like, sorry, the only other thing I'll add onto that is the big – Dave, you used to have a clinic. How many rooms were in East Gardens? Eight or nine? Uh, yeah. I think it was like – oh, God. It was like seven or eight rooms. It was massive. massive. You would have had – I mean, oh, you we would have had – stock which was unaccounted for running around those rooms or whatever it is and you ran your clinics very well yeah like but for every extra room you have you have to have extra stock now whether that's injectable stock or laser stock or skin stock is another question every every dollar of stock you have in there is money that you could have allocated towards marketing Mm. money you could have kept in your pocket to buy a filler box deal that could have come up money that could have been there for a rainy day. So by having more rooms, sometimes it can work against you unless those rooms are all fully utilized. And it's very rare for me to see rooms fully utilized. I, I always tell people to have really small shops because in Australia, at least, the second largest expense people will have is going to be rent. So um, yeah, smaller shops generally are better. Yeah. And then, generally. Got, and then you've got the fit out costs as well, electricity. I didn't like, even think about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it I guess, all adds up. And I guess when you're in a shopping center, and I, you know, everyone knows if, you, if you've looked at rental prices in a shopping center, they're extraordinarily high, especially when you're going into like grade A centers around yeah. the country. And so I guess when you have such high rent and it's making such a big difference to your weekly fixed costs, mm. every, every, step that you can take toward bringing that fixed cost base down takes pressure off your weekly performance um, because it does all add up, you know, an extra $500 per week, you know, that makes a massive difference at the end of the year in terms of how much extra money you're going to put in your pocket. People do forget that, again, I come back to this idea of gross profit. If you, like, to use your example, David, extra $500 a week in rent, people will say, oh, that's an extra customer I have to inject. Well, hang on. Let's inject that customer with $500, 50 units of Botox, $10 a unit. Pay pay off your Botox first, $5 a unit, 50 units, $250, gone right there. Then you have to pay for your nurse. You know, they might get, you know, $100, um, no, $50, $60 an hour, I don't know. Um, you're down to already $150. So you'll have to inject, after just paying the nurse and for the product, that's not the script, that's not anything else. That's actually three or four customers extra a week you'll have to see to pay off that rent so dave you're 100 right and that doesn't include the fit out cost and there's probably another 50 to 100 thousand dollars there i was going to ask you, you know? that because um on our last uh business of objects we had jamie yeah. from uh terrigal and yeah. you know she's running a, a high-end clinic she she had sort of bespoke cabinetry and yeah. she bought a laser i think she's spent over half a million mm. on, the, on that fit out and, and equipment so you said you spent what Hundred grand on your fit out? Me? Yeah. Oh, look, this fit out in Norellan, just the fit out. That's not the working capital. That's not all of the furniture and stuff. I've managed to do for just under two hundred thousand dollars. Right. And I, I think that's insane that we've been able to do that. Um, I'd say the reason we're able to do that is because we've kept a really small shop. Mm-hmm. We've used high end features at the front of the shop to get people in. But in the rooms, for example, like we've just got TVs and joinery, they're facing away from the bed, so you can't even see it. Yeah. So it doesn't really make much of a difference anyway. 
So that $200,000 figure, I'll say 200 to 250 because I always allow for an extra $50,000 of yeah. things that will go wrong. Like that's something I'm going through now, but um, <laughs> like, yeah, but it, it won't, it certainly won't be more than that. But yeah, I'd say about two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I was yeah, going to so say you spend the money when when you built your first one, and now you have built your second one. Did you encounter any things that didn't work? You had to replace. You you configured things wrong. Like, did you learn any lessons from that build? This uh, from the from the first build to the second one, I learned a lot. The main thing you learn is, and this sounds really elementary, but it once it's said. It makes sense. Every extra element costs you money. If you have a wall, that costs money. If you have a door, that costs money. If you've got an extra square meter of floor, that costs money. So the idea is to say, how can we have a very open-aired space where we're almost engineering it around the rooms and getting people through the door? Mm. So the main thing I learned from building the first clinic versus the second clinic was we had curtains in our first clinic. We're now going for doors, and that's a sound consideration. The problem is when you have doors, you need extra air conditioning because in Australia, you need a fifth, you need a 10 millimeter. Any clearance which is less than 10 millimeters under the door requires extra air conditioning. So what we did was we created a 15 millimeter gap. So it is, it's only counted as one room in our clinic. doesn't sound like a lot, but you're saving $1,000 a room there. If you have three rooms, that's $3,000. So all of the little understandings you have of the law are very important that you learn from the first clinic versus the second clinic. Mm. We had dead space in our first clinic that we filled in with joinery in our second clinic that I'm planning to use as a filler experience area. Not so you can try injecting fillers. DIY. Yeah. 50% off if you inject yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, Free occlusion with every treatment, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's more so you can touch and feel the fillers. You can actually quantify what half a mil is, one mil is, five mils are. You can see the differences between different filler brands because, again, I'll go back to say it, these filler brands believe that they're substantially different and that's priced in where one filler brand might be selling at $89 a mil and one is sitting at $289 a mil. I'd love to see where that extra $200 goes. Maybe the consumers can decide. And that's what I think is very interesting and I always tell the pharmaceutical companies, the market forces are what I respond to. Um, What else did I learn? I learned learned where we spent the most amount of time in the consult and what was important. Uh, You guys have been in my room. I think you've seen photos of it as well. Yeah. We've got clinical photography and you can see what you look like. That photography tool is an insurance product first for us, but secondly, it's a sales tool. Yeah. When you see yourself objectively, how you look, you, you say yes to, to what the injector money. says. <laughs> As, yeah, correct. Correct. I mean, injectors tend to be quite objective. I mean, most of the ones you meet who are skilled, I, I mean, I'm stealing a line from David. It's half an art and half a science. Um, you want someone to actually know what the end result is going to look like in their head. And when you can visualize that on a larger screen, that's good. So we got rid of a lot of the joiner in the room where it's just a flat bench and then you've just got a giant TV floating there that you can see our photos for. When you're sitting in the bed, rather than holding a little iPad now, there's a giant 100-inch projector which automatically appears in front of the bed when we Skype our doctors. So the room space has been used extremely efficiently in a larger, larger footprint format 
And I think the patient experience is going to be unparalleled to anything ever seen in the world. Cool. Yeah, that's a big call. Okay. No, I'm, I'm well, willing to okay. Well, how about on. this? Because um, I think everyone would be interested in seeing this. Is if you could, um, when your clinic at Norellan's built, if you could take us on a virtual tour, maybe we'll yes. make that accessible for our patrons so they can actually visualize the stuff that you're talking about. So that's how long until you finish building? Next week, is it? I've been told next week, so let, let's say two weeks. Two weeks, How yeah, about? okay. It'd be great How's if you that? could take us on a tour of the clinic because I think, yeah, I think it'd be great for people Absolutely. to see what you're talking about. Absolutely. Now, I've actually got an interesting question that I think maybe a lot of clinics, maybe smaller clinics starting would grapple with. So I know that you started with a clinic manager who yep. doubled as a receptionist. I know that you yep. were there a lot of the time when you first opened. So do you still have the manager? Do you still have a front of house? Do the injectors just run the show? What's your involvement? Because you've got to pay people, right? Yeah, totally, totally. Well, we had a manager in there initially, but look, a good manager, don't get me wrong. Um, but what I aimed to do with this business was to set it up so it didn't really need a manager per se. So what does a manager do in a business? Order stock, look after consumables, make sure patients are happy deal with complaints, manage rosters. Those are just the top five things that come to my mind. Managing stock was very easy to do because basically we have so much data now about what products we use. And Jake, like you said, you go through your appointment book a week in advance. You're pretty good like all the time. I mean, there have been the occasions where we've run kind of tight with Botox because we've had way too many walk-ins come in, mm. but we've never really run out of any product aside from Profilo for one month last year. Um, dealing with patient complaints, turns out it's kind of hard to deal with patient complaints unless you have a really good background in medical knowledge. And again, yeah. that's why I'm really happy that I'm partnered up with uh, nurses in each site because it helps me because I don't have the answers. We work collaboratively towards a solution for our patients and for our nurses because we want to make sure that our patients are safe and protected and that we can address any issues that they have. But we also want to make sure that our nurses are able to address them. So having nurses who can do that is very important. So again, managers aren't really necessary for that process because it's difficult for them to articulate what can go wrong. Yeah, uh, I've been a lot better with patient complaints now that I've seen quite a few of them. So I know what and what not to triage and how to triage them. But 90% of the time, nurses are dealing with them. Um, then ordering... Ordering consumables, again, very simple, same as stock. We have a checklist. Um, my business partner does that once a week. She's fantastic at doing it. She's all over it. When she goes away on holidays, she just orders more, very yeah. simply. Um, when, there are, when there are complaints, if the manager's not there, you know, they were coming back to me anyway. So maybe I wasn't managing my clinic correctly or managing our manager correctly. But ultimately, people don't like to be disturbed on their days off. So it more became a function of, all right, I'll get my business partner and I to work out a schedule of when to manage complaints and how to do them. Uh -huh. And then that way we could each have a proper break, which we've done. And then rostering was something that we only did once every six months and then for holidays. So needing a manager was kind of something that became redundant yeah. as, as the role went on. As a result, it was good for our payroll because it went down. Um, but... It was not a payroll decision that um, that we made. It was more of a decision that we made of, all right, what's necessary for the business in order to prolong our journey? Yeah. So I, I would I would tell people to try to not have a manager in the business 
unless they're actively trying to step away from it. Mm. And that's okay if you're actively trying to step away from it. Like if you're going on maternity leave or you're going to Europe for four months or you feel like you can't take on the workload or you don't have what it takes to be a manager, but you're a great injector or wants to own your clinic, that's fine. But I wouldn't just hire a manager for the sake of somebody having having somebody in my business to call a manager. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, if you're a proactive injector and you're thinking about your business, all of those things can be done, mm. well, on your own. You don't need even a second it, person. It, ta- it takes, look, I think a receptionist is important in our business because like I mentioned before, we get such a large volume of people walking through the door that it's necessary for us to have a receptionist. And I think the people we have on reception are wonderful as well. They provide great customer service. They provide an extra touch point for our patients. They make it a lot easier for patients to book in. We're accessible because they ask us questions. Does it hurt? How long is it going to last? I don't want to look like those ducky girls. So they're, they're really good. <laughs> it's, 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 not, it's not a sales role. It's an education role. And yeah. that's what I always tell people when they start up with us. And it makes it a lot more palatable, not only for the patients, but also for the nurses. Because when they've got somebody there supporting them along the way, it makes the days a lot shorter, which is nice. Where, where have you found the receptionist? What's their background? Because often people struggle with finding the right, even you know, front of house. It's hard to find receptionists. It's definitely hard to find receptionists. I've got uh, three great ones in Bondi, um, and I've just hired two great ones in New Ireland as well. Um, I found them all on Seek, but you know, you'll get anywhere from seventy to one hundred and thirty applications for a receptionist. Wow! I'm not interviewing all of them. Yeah. I know what to look for in my head, so I can generally filter that down to twenty. I'll text twenty of them. Ten of them will show up. Of the ten. Five of them will have the right personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, three of them will have the right experience, and then a couple of them will be the right candidate. We'll go for that one. Fair so enough. It's it's a filtering process, and the right receptionist for me is not going to be the right receptionist for your guys's clinics. It's not going to be the right receptionist for somebody else's clinics. But the ones that we have are fantastic. They know what they're doing. Uh, they're well trained. I think what's I think the best part of my team, if I'm honest, is we're all there to work. But we can have a laugh. We can we can joke around with each other. And it's less about, hey, I did this today, so you have to do this tomorrow. And it's about sharing the workload because we know on some days it's really high, on some days it's really low, but on average, it evens out for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Been a busy boy, Kian. Very, very busy. <laughs> I very... think I'm I think I'm quite busy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask about your injecting team, where you started and where you are now. Every clinic mm. goes through this. David's mm. gone through hundreds. <laughs> but, you know, you, you set out with the right intentions. You think you've got the right injector. You think you've got the right personality. And then inevitably it doesn't work out or someone has a baby or, you know, whatever. So do, do you still have the same team or did you have to get rid of some people? My injecting team, I started off with two nurses. Mm-hmm. Um, I've now got five nurses. I had to let one of the nurses go from the original two, uh, not because she was a bad person. And like, in fact, you know, her injecting work was pretty good, but uh, the problem was her returning client base wasn't there. Mm. And this business is about returning patients. You, there's, there's a lot of new patients out there, but you cannot rely on this business by just having new patients walk through over and over and over again. Correct. Jake, I'm, so, I'm sure you see familiar faces Every day you're injecting, you might see a couple of new ones here or there, but you yes. must be so busy that it's hard for you to see that. Uh, and we're having that now with a couple of our injectors, which I think is a quality problem to have. We love returning patients. We yep. love new ones as well, but uh, <laughs> there's a different there's a there's a different kind of essence in the room with the new uh, with the returning patients. 
Um, the reason it didn't work out is because of the returning patients. It wasn't an ego thing. It wasn't a, hey, this person's extremely unsafe and giving people VOs or mm. TOSIs. Um, bit of compliance issues as well, things that we try to plug, nothing major, but things that we wanted to make sure we were on top of and send a strong message to the rest of our team about. But again, I would say that like it's mm. it's it's not something personal and I try to keep personal relationships and business relationships separate, but that's not always possible. Yeah. Um, the five nurses we have now are fantastic and I think I've become a better manager over the last two years by understanding the drivers of each nurse and what makes them tick. Um, not all nurses are money-driven. Nurses, I mean, they used to, maybe not so much as as now, didn't go into this industry to make a lot of money. They went into this industry because they're empathetic people. Yeah, They like to help. They like making people feel safe. And they like to learn. So we foster an environment which is conducive to those metrics. And by having that, we make it really good so our nurses want to stay rather than having it really difficult for nurses to leave. Um, going back to rebookings, because that's the lifeblood of a, a clinic and an injector, yep. like what was it that, that wasn't getting the rebookings? Obviously, there's a, an impetus on the injector mm-hmm. to sort of bring it up and talk about it and plan for it. But, you know, the patients obviously want to have to do it as well. So what was the issue, do you think? Without trying to p- uh, pick on this particular injector, because I don't think that's fair to her, um, like it, this is a very interesting thing about my clinic. And I would love to know if I'm wrong, because every nurse I've hired has told me that they rebook patients, but the data I have tells me otherwise. <laughs> every nurse, like... Um, and I don't think it's because my nurses are incompetent. I don't think it's because they're bad. Yeah. Their patients still come back, but they're just not physically rebooked on the spot. Right. And again, like I've had nurses and doctors who I speak to will tell me about their billings. And then when I've done the numbers in my head, it doesn't make sense. So I don't think nurses and doctors are, are purposely ma- being malice or lying. I just think people don't know their numbers and that's okay. Like, mm. It, they're, they're not trained to know their numbers. They're trained to give really good clinical outcomes in a safe environment uh, where people want to come back. So where did it go wrong with this person? I, I don't think rebooking was the major issue. I think what the issue is, this person came from a chain clinic, and this is not the case all the time, but chain clinics are very risk-averse, as they should be, to David's point, because when you have 100 clinics, naturally the quality of injectors will diminish because there's only such a large pool of talent in the industry to have and the chain clinics won't absorb all of them. They end up having cookie cutter treatments of 40 and 50 unit packages. Yeah. If somebody needs 48 units instead of 55 units, most of the time the nurses are looking at how much commission they're making in these chain clinics and saying, well, all right, well, I'm going to give 55 units instead where 48 is probably the right amount to give to someone. Yeah. If they are going to give 55, I always tell them, you know, put in the mentalis, put in the, give them a lip flip, um, put in their DAO instead, and give them something else, but don't just load up their crows and load up their glabella because that's not going to lead to a good clinical outcome and they're not going to want to come back. Um, the other issue is that like this industry, nothing that we do, is actually necessary. Like this is all cosmetic. It's still medicine needs to be treated with the same level of respect and uh, seriousness because things can go wrong very quickly, but it's not necessary. 
And I think sometimes that's conflated with high sales and saying this is sales, 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 sales. It, it, sales is a part of this industry, but yeah. it's not the be all and end all. Mm-hmm. I think there's a better way to sell, which comes back to the consultation. And that's why photography is very important because somebody will come in saying, hey, I want my my lips done. And then the answer might be, yeah, I'll do your lips, but your cheeks also look deflated. I think we should do your cheeks as well so you don't look lopsided in the lips. And that's a very fair thing to say, maybe in much nicer terms. <laughs> but I would tell people to think less as a salesperson and think of yourself more as an educator and then work out a happy medium between the two because you do need to sell. And saying I'm not in sales is not the right excuse in this industry because, and this is my crude belief, everybody in this industry is in sales because again, nothing we do here is necessary. Like people who sell dresses are in sales. People who sell cars are in sales. You don't need a Porsche. That Toyota Camry is going to take you from point A to point B. You might get there five minutes uh, later, but the reality is you don't need this stuff. So it does come back to sales a little bit. And I don't like saying this, but at its first principles, that's what it is when you strip away all the glamour from this. So I, I would tell people to think of themselves more as an educator than a salesperson. And as a result, you will become a better injector. Uh, the other thing I would also do is don't be rushed. You can be perfectly fine in this industry, seeing eight, nine, 10 people a day and trying to work with them to give them the best result possible rather than trying to see 15 people and pump them all up, not doing your notes on time, not having photos, having a really work uh, messy work environment where your risk of infection increases exponentially, where your patient doesn't feel like they had the right experience and as a result will end up going somewhere else. There's no need to be rushed. If you're going to take 40 minutes to do Botox, the spend better be there, but it's okay like because our Botox appointments are 40 minutes, and I know that sounds crazy, but our Botox unit spend, I would bet, are a lot higher than most other clinics out there. And I think it's because we've got two girls who focus a lot on off-label, and we've been able to work with them in a way where they've been able to take that even to the next level. Um, I would also tell people that the there is a bit of rapport building as well. You can't just come into the, all right, what are we doing today? Like There has to be a bit of chit-chat. You know, what's been happening in your lives, knowing something personal about them, you know, being there, like being their friend for lack of a better term is really important. I mean, this isn't, this isn't bowel surgery. I mean, it's supposed to be a bit of fun. Like I know people enjoy getting fillers and Botox. I certainly do. Not everybody likes getting jabbed in the face with a needle, understandably, but building up rapport is also a very important part of this. So being an injector is a multifaceted uh, skill set. And I think that defines someone who's perfected all of them is extremely difficult. But I think the girls that work at QTOX have managed to do that really well. I think you touched on something really interesting, and I'm sure you've seen this maybe, David, more than me, but you get injectors who've worked in the chain Mm. um, environment, Mm -hmm. and and this isn't really a a bash at them, it's just a, a fact. Because they're short, you know, consultation times generally, not always, but generally, high volume, but also packages, like advertised packages of, like you said, it's either 40 or 55 tox. Rarely do you sort of go outside of that. The injector does that for a few years and they almost forget how to diagnose and consult. They they sell 
they they do. Yeah. But there's mm. less thinking. It's like a fast food menu. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's like, do you want the Happy Meal or the extra value meal? It, 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 there's nothing in between. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's um, it's difficult for new injectors. I think for new injectors, that makes it easier, makes it a little bit more tangible. You either have option one or option two, and, you know, you get the Glabella or, and the Crows, and that that's as far as you go with the 40-unit package. Well, but, the, the idea is very beautiful because it's simple. Yeah, I mean, it, in a perfect world, everybody would only need forty or fifty-five units. But yeah, some people have stronger muscles than others. Some people have lopsided faces. Yeah, uh, some people aren't looking for a frozen result. Some people are looking to make sure that their mm. husbands never find out about this. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I'm saying when you take an injector out of that environment and take them to Qtox or somewhere else, and you give them an hour with a new patient, they almost don't know what to do with it mm. because they're like, well. You're exactly right. What, what are You're we going to exactly do with that? Exactly right. Yeah, and and they're not used to doing the photography and and the rapport building. Well, it's... I'm very lucky. You know, we've got one nurse who still works at a chain clinic, and she's she's very, she's a very interesting case in, in the best way possible. Um, she works at a chain clinic. She works with us. She works at another boutique, and she she brings the best elements from the chain clinics. Mm. Where she she does know when to um like when to, and I don't want to say sell because again I don't see her as a seller i do see her as a very good educator yeah but then she's also very good at doing the boutique consult so again not every nurse from the chain clinics has that issue but certainly it's a more pronounced issue in the chain clinics more so than anywhere else and yeah how much of a problem it is you never know yeah what mm. do you think oh look i mean i think that it's 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 an issue because that's where a lot of these nurses get their first like sort of foray into the industry. So they kind of come out of, you know, a boot camp and then they're in these rooms and quite quickly they're sort of loaded up with patients. And as you said, they're sort of adhering to a menu style system and high volume, less time with each patient, not so there's an, and 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 normally the people that are running these clinics, you know, they're not doctors or nurses, they're sort of franchisee entrepreneurs or large corporations. And so there's no one kind of there making sure they're ticking all the boxes and, and being totally compliant all the time. So I think that these habits develop. Mm. It's like taking someone that's worked at, you know, in economy class for like Ryanair or Tiger and then throwing them into like business class in Emirates. Like you're just going to get like a different mindset. Yeah. It's just, you know, attention to detail, you know, all the niceties, how to build rapport, how to make feel someone feel comfortable, you know, paying attention to detail. Sure, you get you get an occasional unicorn who'll come out of the chain clinics who who amazingly be able to just seamlessly transition into one of these more up upmarket clinics that's offering a different experience. Hmm. But if you've sort of been indoctrinated into this kind of you know sausage factory kind of mentality, I don't mean to you know, and they're not all like that, but I think you know the high volume the high volume patient throughput, you know, does lead to a certain mentality and habits are formed, which can be very difficult to break. And so if you're charging a higher price. People expect you've got to justify it. Yeah, you can't just give people. People come into a chain clinic; they know they're going to pay like a very competitive price, and they're okay with maybe a lesser experience for that. That's the trade-off that they've made in their mind, and they're okay with that. But if mm. to all of a sudden take an injector that's been providing a service that's okay for that environment, but then put them into a different environment where the prices are 10, 20, 30 percent more, yeah, there's a disconnect. There, yeah. there, there, the value, Correct. the value proposition Correct. isn't there. So yeah. I, think, I think that's Correct. the problem. And another thing that. I at least encounter is when those injectors do leave the chain and maybe set up on their own, they really struggle to price themselves properly because yeah. they're still in that mindset yeah. of competing 100%. with the chain. 
So you've obviously, you know, changed that Kian by upping your prices to sort of that medium level. You're neither low nor high, but you know, have you had to do any price adjustments over the year? I mean, you've said that you found maybe um, better deals on toxin or, or filler well, or whatever. Pro- pro- I mean, this has been a really weird trading environment the last two years because inflation has been far higher than where anybody wants it. Yeah. And I think it will continue to be high for at least the next 12 months, potentially 24 months. Our price increases have largely been due to cost pressures in the supply chain because of increases to minimum wage, uh, increases to superannuation. And I'm not saying these because I'm against them. I'm just stating the fact. Mm. Um, increases to input costs such as uh, disport, which increased in price about three times in the last 18 months. Wow, okay. Mm. Um, our rent increases. Um, it's Sorry, our rent is indexed, I should say. Um, what does that mean for people that don't understand that? Index means it's linked to inflation. So if inflation goes up 5% and your rent's $1,000, your rent will go up uh, proportionally by 5%. Mm -hmm. Um, So passing on costs has been one thing, but also a big big focus on gross profit and getting that up to a level which Mm -hmm. is above the industry standard, or at least where I see it as the industry standard. Um, I would say it's there's two different ways to raise your prices. one, uh, there's two different ways to make more money. One of them is raising your prices. One of them is looking at data and analytics and working out how you can do it without that. Um, if your split of revenue is heavily skewed towards Botox, I can already tell in your head that you're going to be making less money on a gross profit percentage level. That means that you are making less money in your pocket if you're selling more tox than if you're selling, you know, say, an even amount of tox and fillers. The reason for that is fillers have better um, better unit economics. Pricing myself has been very difficult because I'll look at chain clinics and I'll look at you know some really good doctor clinics out there and uh, solo doctors, maybe some of them, well, same, maybe one that we all know very well. Um, <laughs> and I'll say, well, what's a happy medium? Because you want to be about 20% higher than the chain clinics, but you also don't want to be so close to the doctors because- there's a concept called price elasticity. And if you raise your price too much, there's the idea that after a while, people will drop off. The reason petrol companies are making so much money is you need petrol. So they can raise their price to $3 a litre. You're still going to fill up your car. You might drive less, but they'll still make a ridiculous amount of money. So what we look to do is to say, how do we give people really good treatments and great outcomes so we have more pricing power that we can pass on cost savings to our consumers but also tell the market, hey, we're not the worst because our price isn't the lowest, but we're not trying to be number one in terms of price by raising our price to $25 a unit. Hmm. So it's a delicate balance of understanding competitive forces and gross profit margins in unison to work out Hmm. what is going to be an effective price to sell at. And um, this is something that I've noticed as well with looking at some people's finances that I've looked at recently and even going back you know years ago when I was sort of helping friends out in their businesses just generally is just people not paying attention to their gross margin over time so as your rent goes up as you said like every year the award goes up and people's prices just remain static and I'm looking going your revenue's up but you're making less money and then I look it and I'm going I start sort of delving into it and it's like you haven't increased your prices in like four years like 
this can't continue. Like you do this another two years, you'll be bankrupt. Like you, mm. <laughs> you need yeah. to increase your prices. And this is again, and the importance of paying attention to this, you know, um, paying attention to your numbers is because these sorts of things can creep up on you over time. They do. Yeah. They, they seriously do. Why? Well, not why it's obvious why some injectors struggle with that because they don't want to turn their, their customers off yeah. because of higher yeah, prices. Pretty but much it, yeah. how do you recommend that people listening do it logistically? Do they send an email? Do they have to justify it? Do they just do it? Like wh- wh- how do they um, actually do it? I mean, for me, it depends on, on, for me, it depends on, on the business. Each case is a little bit different, but for people that have got established businesses and I've spoken about this heaps in our, in our Patreon group and a lot of the private consulting that I do is, potentially look at increasing your prices for new customers to begin with. So if you've already got like a full, a full book of, of patients, mm. maybe just keep them where they are for the time being and test the waters with increased prices with new patients. So at least that way, if you haven't mi- missed, you've missed the mark, you've increased it too much, you haven't got the, the, the balancing act quite right, um, is to just introduce it to new patients so that you don't have alienated anyone that's existing. So you're not going to tank your business overnight by pricing yourself out of the market mm. and probably to do it incrementally. You know, maybe if, you get, if you've got to do a price increase over the next, you know, you've got to increase it by a certain amount, maybe do it over like, you know, test, do it over two quarters or maybe over a year, you slowly increase it incrementally. But I think that when you've got these prices going up everywhere, you go and buy a big, like, you know, I was listening to that, like a Big Mac's like 11 bucks now, something in America, like something, <laughs> something crazy, right? And so um, everyone knows that when you've got these record inflation numbers and they're paying more at the petrol pump, that it's, yeah. it's not unusual. You actually you're missing an opportunity to stay in line with the market and maintaining your margins if you don't. If it's happening everywhere, then it's unusual if you're not doing it. Exactly. I, I, I mean, no one likes to sort of potentially lose the odd customer, but at the same time, everything has gone up. Yeah. So you would be unusual not looking at it and, yeah. and, and thinking about it logically. Yeah. And it's just people, what? I think, just not, not wanting to, like they're just not turning their mind to business. Like they're just sort of focusing on clinical stuff and not just sort of pretending this kind of thing's not happening. I mm. think a well, bit. think so, about would you rather have $600 from eight people or would you rather have $500 from 10 people? So $500 from 10 people is 5,000. 600 from eight is 4,800. So you just, do the, you just do some quick maths on the back of an envelope and say, well, all right, there's going to be a... 10% or 20% drop off in spend, but there's going to be a 30% increase in, in number of people coming through. All right, it's a worthwhile trade-off. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly I agree with you guys. I mean, start off with new patients. That's a great way to go. If you if that doesn't work, I mean, maybe just look at some strategic price raises like taking Botox from $12 to $12.90, for example, or looking at your share of face and saying, well, Ultra is our entry-level product. We'll do entry-level lips for, for $400. But then we might introduce something else, which is more premium in the lips for, say, $600, like for Lyft, for yeah. example. And a lot of it depends on what kind of business have you built. Have you built a, a book full of tire kicker patients that don't see any value in what you do other than your price? Yeah. Or are they people that like love you to bits, they never miss an appointment. If you increase your prices by 10%, they're not going to blink because the relationship they have with you and the type of person that they are is not going to make any impact. So yeah. a lot of it comes down to what kind of business have you built and what sort of clients have you attracted? And again, this comes back to how do you start your business? Do you say yes to everyone or do you stand your ground? You have your prices at a certain point. You do things intelligently. You stage your growth. Yeah. You sort of got a contingency You wouldn't plan. shop around at a neurosurgeon, I would hope. <laughs> don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I think it's, all, it, it, it's, it's never sort of a black and white thing it's just about understanding basic business principles thinking about things logically yeah 
you know, having people around you that understand business that have done it before. And, you know, like what we've built with our Patreon community. I mean, we've got like 300 people in those chat rooms now who Mm. all come from different parts of the world. There are people that are super experienced international KOLs. We've got newbies that are just like joined the industry that don't know anything about anything. Yeah. And so I think that's part of how you sort of build your knowledge base is surrounding yourself with people that you're happy to be generous um, with their knowledge and experience. Definitely. Um, I guess moving on from pricing, it's just stock. You, you sort of touched on, you know, your your question about uh, sourcing different toxins and fillers, but can you give maybe the listeners, I don't know, advice about how, how you maybe go about those negotiations or decisions to sort of stock something new that's cheaper, but maybe sell less of it and you still stick to the premium brand? Like how do you get that balance? My number one advice for any negotiation is don't be afraid to walk away. Mm. 10 years ago, there was only two toxins on the market. There are now four in Australia. This time next year, they're going to be six. This time in five years, there's probably going to be 10. Yeah. Competition is increasing and market share between pharmaceutical companies is getting more intense. You have the choice as a doctor or nurse as to what to inject. You may prefer one brand over another. I've done half my face with Xeomin. I've done half my face with Disport. I won't tell you which one lasted longer. I won't tell you which one kicked in faster. But all I can say is most toxins, on average and given a big enough patient pool will revert to a mean. So if you're comfortable paying double for Botox over Latibo, and that's fine because we do, you have to expect to charge your patients more and you have to expect that there's going to be a clinic that will open up next to you that will charge a cheaper price and you have to expect you'll lose customers from that. So I would tell people, do not be afraid to experiment with different brands. If you like Allergan, you don't have to buy everything from Allergan. You might say, they've got the best lip products, they've got the best jaw products, but in the cheeks, you might prefer something from Stylage, you might prefer something from Tioxane, for example. That's fine. I would tell people to actually not be afraid to experiment because we can be very dogmatic in this industry where we don't want to switch. And these pharmaceutical companies are really smart. They'll run a filler box deal and they'll say, buy 30 boxes, which is actually 60 syringes, and you might get 30% off your fillers. I mean, I find it funny that pharmaceutical companies can sell us discounts, but we can't give that to patients, but that's a different story. (laughs) Um, what What I would tell you is the pharmaceutical companies are saying, we're going to take sales away from other companies by selling this person 30 boxes. And it, we're going to increase the switching costs because they may be selling Restylane two weeks ago. Now they'll be selling Juvederm for the next six months. And then when they try to switch patients back to Restylane, the patients would be thinking, hmm, why are they giving me Restylane this time, Juvederm this time, then back to Restylane? There's nothing nefarious there, but it's, it is kind of interesting for a patient to question that. So I would tell you to really look at the science and trust in your products, not only in the short term, but the long term. Mm. A really good case study we ran was with Latibo. We were the first clinic in Australia to inject Latibo. Um, I received it myself. I've been getting Botox, Disport, Xeomin for a number of years. I found the efficacy to be similar to Botox. It was at a much cheaper price. So I said, all right, I'm going to try it. If patients would like to try it as well and get the cost savings, they can. They did. Some of them didn't like it. We gave them Botox at a discount in order to keep our patients happy. That worked. The ones that liked Latibo continue using Latibo. And as a result, we made more profit. So 
I know that you know Allegan and Galderma weren't too happy about losing out some of our tox business, but I don't work for Allegan or Galderma. I work for the consumers, and I want to make sure that they're happy first. And I wouldn't go as far as to go to my nurses and say, you're not selling Botox anymore because it's too expensive. You can only sell the Tebow. I like to give them the choice, and I like to let the free market uh, actually inform their decisions. So if there's a nurse sitting on front desk that quotes somebody on Botox and says, three areas is going to cost you $550, that patient walks away, well, maybe next time they're going to recommend Disport, where three areas might only be $432. And as a result, that patient converts. That's a price saving of about $118. So the the nurse is happy because they've gotten 50% of something rather than 100% of nothing. The consumer's happy because they're saving money. The only person who's lost here is the pharmaceutical company. So my advice in negotiation is try new products because more are coming to market. Don't be afraid to walk away. Ask and you will receive. And you do need to have some kind of loyalty. I wouldn't recommend lying to the pharmaceutical companies and saying, next year, I'm going to sell 60,000 units of uh, Ultra, so give me a discount now. Don't kick up your legs and scream and shout. Just have a rational and pragmatic conversation with them, which shows you uh, shows them the data of what you're moving and what you can supply them. And these they're rational people. Every time I've dealt with the pharmaceutical companies in this industry, they're extremely pragmatic. They're professional. They're great to deal with. And I, I can't say a bad thing about them at all. Um, so I would tell you to be honest, and then the right thing will come. But you have to know your numbers. And simply saying, I'm going to sell you so much fillers, um, I give you. I give this company two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. It's not enough. Show them the data. I promise you, you are wrong. Show them the data. I promise you, you are wrong. I have to say it twice because <laughs> I've never looked at somebody's books and found out they're, that they're right with the numbers that they're giving pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, I, I, I guess from an injector's perspective, who's running sort of my own business, try everything. I agree with you. You know, you, you'll have a much broader experience and, and you'll be a better injector for it to understand, you know, different products. But ultimately the proof is in the pudding. Mm. Like if you're not happy with one product, don't use it if it's cheaper. Obviously mm. go back yes. to, to, to the more expensive one. You, you cannot make a, a decision just on, you know, effect. But if it's crazy expensive, then you have to make a, a business decision where maybe that's not sustainable versus there's no point using the cheap one if it's not doing what you want. So you have to I agree with you. sort of yeah. find a common ground, I guess. The other thing is dogma. I hear so, I've heard so many conversations where someone will say, oh, I heard this product, crap. Like, have you tried it yourself? No, yeah. but I've just heard it from someone else. Well, yeah, especially in this industry. Oh, you it's know, mental. So much it's Chinese whispers. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there is an agenda out there from pharmaceutical companies to beat each other up and talk each other down. Like, I won't say which pharmaceutical companies are doing it to who, but when the new Tox Latibo came out, it got there was a lot of rumors going around. I'm sure you boys saw it. Yeah, I heard Maybe it. in your patching group. Maybe yeah. you saw it on Facebook or Instagram, whatever it is. Look, when it doesn't work, we, we're not going to inject it, very simply. Um, I, I, I'm happy if anybody wants to come in and inject it in my face. I'll let them do half my face with Latibo, half my face with Botox. Let's see what happens. I'd well, you, well you'll know very quickly as the injector, forget the business side of things. If you start getting 10 people coming back, having injected 10 people that week unhappy, you know. Yeah. You know, you yeah, don't need I, anyone to absolutely. tell you. I think as well, absolutely. I think as well, it's just worth noting that different toxins sometimes require slightly different techniques there's different dilutions Correct. so it's not just like they're they're the same 
bacteria, but there's different preparations and they need to be treated differently. You can't just do a straight substitute and expect to get exactly the same results. So I think that a lot of people have been trained up on one toxin and then they go and try another, they apply exactly the same technique and then their outcome's not the same. Mm. Well, is it the product's problem or is it the person who's injecting it that hasn't adjusted their technique? Correct. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Mm. You, 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 they're apples and pears. They're different. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. And apples, apples aren't the same as pears. And I think it's good in our marketplace that we have a diverse amount of products yeah. that injectors can choose from. Yeah. 100%. Um, podcast Gosh. is getting a little bit long, but just a couple more points that I think would be interesting for our listeners. So I think you mentioned marketing or, or marketing budget right at the start, but what did you do at the start and what have you changed? Uh, initially, it was a lot of hope and prayers. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, initially, the client base came from Naomi, my business partner, and myself. And as we depleted through that, uh, she and I quickly realized that things would have to change. Again, we're spending shopping center money for shopping center rents, and we expect a certain level of walk-ins. Mm. Walk-ins provided about 70% of our, our clients. Now, walk-ins make up 40% of our new clients, referrals make up about 40% of our new clients, and online bookings make up about 20% of the extra ones. So what I've learned over time is you can't stick to one marketing strategy. You have to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Mm. Pay attention to your customer acquisition cost, which is how much money you're spending on marketing divided by how many new customers you're getting, and then work out what's an efficient marketing strategy. We've managed to reduce ours by about 40% over time, and it continues to go down even while other people are spending more money on marketing. So we can afford to pump more money into marketing, but right now we're choosing to hold a little bit more cash because we're uncertain about the future trading environment. So Kian, we, we sort of touched earlier in the chat around the CRM system that you've been using, which I think is Pabu. I think you started off with Gumnuts, and then you went, then you went to Pabu, and now you're looking to change again. So I mean, just sort of briefly, because I know we've sort of People are probably uh, starting to <laughs> zone out a bit long, but is, I guess in terms of um, why you've made that decision and 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 what what advantages do you have you been looking for in something else? Uh, I look at a few things. I look at a user interface. So is it easy for me to use? Yep. Is it pretty to look at? It it's we're in aesthetics. It's it's important that it looks the part. I look for something called friction. How easy is it for a patient to make a booking online? So if there's this bullshit, or sorry, that's um, right. Yeah. Oh well. Um, if if it's difficult to book online with usernames and passwords, it immediately becomes a no for me. I think that's a horrible thing to do. Um, it's one of the reasons that I, I have been shopping around for other CRMs. Yeah. Um, I think reporting is essential, and if you're not paying attention to your reports mm. every day, you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. So being able to customize reports to say. Show me how many people have tried to make an online booking but didn't convert. Show me, show me how many Botox appointments I had in the last four months versus now. Yep. Show me who's come back for Botox in the last four months and who hasn't. Very simple things like that I look at. Marketing, less important because I do a lot of that in Microsoft Excel, uh, which is all about data manipulation to make sure you can text the right people and call the right people. The other things I look at are you know, what do the notes look like? Really, really important because we get a lot of people calling up to say, hey, what did I have last time? We can quickly jump into their notes, see what they had in an instant. I also look at price. So I think sometimes spending more money on your mm. CRM is actually a good thing, yeah. but there's a limit to where it gets too much. And I would encourage you to make a trade-off between price and features. Uh, 
More features aren't necessarily better. I would just stick to the basics. How many appointments do I have? How much money am I making? What's my gross profit? And what are the value of my future appointments? Fair. Excellent. Um, You've said that you're opening a second clinic. So location, tell us about it. Why have you chosen there? Is it in a mall? Is it different? This is a really exciting one. We're opening up our second clinic after less than two years of trading. Most people thought that we wouldn't be able to be, be in business this long. We're opening up a second clinic in, again, a difficult trading environment. Remember last time you guys said it would be tough during COVID? Maybe it's even tougher now with higher interest rates, uh, two geopolitical wars going on, mm. and a lot of political tensions. We chose Norellin. Why I like that area is a few reasons. Limited competition. In Western Sydney, uh, it's a growing area, far more than the rest of Sydney. The demand for injectables is quite high because people spend a little bit of money on their houses because housing there is not so expensive compared to the inner city, which gives them more disposable income. That disposable income ends up going inside their faces, and we want to capture a share of that. I also um, managed to find somebody out there who's a wonderful person and also a great nurse. her name's Katerina, and she's my business partner in this one. I'm really looking forward to opening up with her. Uh, she was working out of the area, but she knows the area quite intimately. She lives down the road. So I'm really excited to be opening up with her. The reason I chose Norellin, though, was I found a corner location in a small in a small shop in a busy shopping center where I'm partnered with brands like H&M, RM Williams, Woolworths, Big W, Target, guys, these are international brands. You're in bed with the best. So don't overthink it. Like, this is the same as advertising on Google. You're just doing it in person instead. Fair enough. Yeah. So when's that one going to open? Well, like I alluded to before, I've been told next week. (laughs) All right, okay. (laughs) But but let's let's run with the uh, idea of two weeks from now. Yeah. So I'm hoping November 20 to November 25th. Yeah, well, um, as we said, um, please capture some content for us because we'd love to share it. Because I'm sure everyone that's listened to this would want to know what this clinic, what this clinic looks like, and Absolutely. to be able to sort of orientate a lot of what was said with what actually has physically been created. So, um, if you could do that, that would be fantastic. But I think you know, I mean, I remember back to our conversation. Was it a year and a half ago? Two years? Oh, was it two years? Two ago? years. Two years ago. I mean, I can certainly see how you've grown as an entrepreneur. I mean, you're always a smart guy. Um, but in terms of your insights... You never say handsome. Well, <laughs> you're not my type. Um, <laughs> too much facial. I'm, I'm the only one in the relationship that's allowed to have facial hair, Kian. So, you know. <laughs> um, but no, I, I can definitely see like how, how, you've, how you've grown um, in terms of, you know, how you're able to speak, your understanding of, of the nuance of the industry. So it's been really interesting to have you back and um, hear about the lessons that you've learned and how you've grown as an entrepreneur and especially in this space. So congratulations and I wish you... Um, all the best um, for the second clinic and maybe we'll get you back for episode three at some point um, and you can tell us how Norellin's gone and maybe you'll be looking at clinic number four or number five. So thank you. Yeah. Who knows? Well, my, my parting thing is, well, obviously congratulations, but I'm curious, final question, when is enough? Is it three, five, ten? Like what, what, what's the plan? How does an artist know when to stop painting? <laughs> When they cut the air off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I'm do- what I'm doing is like, if you told a, if you told a sculptor they only had a hundred more days to live, would they stop sculpting? 
No, they would want to finish their, their work of art. And this to me is like an empty canvas and I get to paint it however I want. So I, I, you would tell that sculptor, you know, Michelangelo, go fi- finish your works, go be great. That's the way I think about my businesses. So I don't do I don't do this purely for monetary enjoyment. I think it's also there's there's an element of beauty to this. I mean, no pun intended. <laughs> um, and I, I know it's funny, but I love this. Yeah, I love it. So I get to do what I love with people I yeah. like every day. So yeah, um, yeah, that's how I see myself. In a way, you've slightly disappointed me because I thought you were going to say I've got a five year plan and it's all planned out and I've got the spreadsheet. Oh, no, I mean, there, I know there might you. be that as well. Yeah, there yeah. might be that as well. But <laughs> for, for me, for me, this is this is a thing of beauty. We are we're going to grow. We're going to be number one. I, I'm not looking to be second in this industry. I'm looking to be number one. We're going to get there. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know it is going to yeah. happen. But Right now, I do see myself as a bit of an artist. Okay, well, Mr. Da Vinci, thank you very much for your time. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank thanks, very much. And I look forward to seeing when you've uh, finished painting the Sistine Chapel. So, th- oh, that was Michael right. Angelo. <laughs> but anyway, I'm close my enough. Facial hair for you next time. Thank right? you, bro. <laughs> see you, buddy. Thank you, Bye. For our latest news, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. If you want to get in touch with myself or David, follow us on Instagram as well at Dr. Jake Sloan and David underscore Inside Aesthetics. Join our IA Patreon platform for invaluable business and injectable education. Get access to our global community of like-minded professionals, live and interactive Zoom sessions, hints and tip videos, webinars, and more. Head over to www.insideaesthetics.com forward slash Patreon for more information.